Why can't Woody from Toy Story play his guitar? He doesn't know where his picks are. Ah, yeah. I know, I know. Don't quit my day job. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy, famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and topics or tips about guitars and music recording. Oof, so uh, this is awkward. I've been teasing this big special episode for a little while now, and uh, it was supposed to be this week. But uh, the big thing that the special episode is supposed to be centered around uh, still isn't here. Thanks, USPS. Yeah, it's been in the mail for like three weeks now, and it was scheduled to show up before this weekend. But I guess the crystal ball the Postal Service uses to predict their deliveries needs to be recalibrated or something. I don't know. Either way, I ended up writing this entire episode in one seven-hour caffeine-fueled crunch fest, but I'm still excited to sit down and hang out with you guys today, so I hope you enjoy it. First up in our news, I wanted to talk about something that I've been seeing on the internet a lot lately, and it has to do with IK Multimedia's new Tonex pedal. If you're not aware of it, the Tonex pedal was released back in February of this year, and it created a pretty big wave when it came out. The pedal's 400 bucks, and it touts itself as an actual profile. Similar in function to the $1,900 Kemper, albeit in a much smaller form factor. The way the Tonex works is it sends a specially prepared track through whatever you plug it into, whether it be a single pedal, an amp, an amp and a cab, or a whole rig, pedals, amp, and cabinet included. Then it listens to how that rig affects the signal and creates a digital model of it through machine learning. While on the face of it, the pedal doesn't seem that great, like, sure, I can make digital copies of my rig, which would be useful for live shows where I don't want to risk my stuff getting damaged or stolen. The real kicker for this comes from the Tonex software, which allows users to upload and share their models with other users, effectively giving you access to a library of every other Tonex user's rigs, should they choose to share them. This also includes a lot of high-quality models that IK Multimedia have created and uploaded themselves. You know, it actually kind of reminds me of those old ads for DVD piracy where it talks about, you know, you wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a handbag, and then says, like, downloading pirated DVDs is uh, stealing and all that. You know, it seems like a joke to say, you wouldn't download a JCM-800. But effectively, with this, you could download a JCM-800. Plus, it'd actually be, you know, legal. (laughs) While the Tonex pedal is all well and cool, it's not really what I'm here to talk about, but rather what some users are noticing when it comes to selling their used Tonex pedals. So on various websites and forums, you see people that are pretty miffed about selling their Tonex on the used market and finding out that they need to pay a $20 licensing fee in order to transfer it to another user. Why does this matter? Well, without the license for the Tonex software, the unit is effectively locked into whatever presets are already stored on it, cutting you off from the rest of the community, which is the whole reason anyone would really buy it in the first place. Another point that they made is that according to the IK Multimedia website, you actually have to wait 90 days after you register the Tonex in the first place to be able to transfer the license, meaning you effectively have to own it for three months before you could fully sell and transfer it to somebody else. Reading that, I really don't know how I feel about it. I mean, you see all kinds of companies that try to get a leg up on the secondhand market, especially when it comes to, like, cars or video games. 
In video games, you you have download-only DLC that's tied to an individual's account, and it doesn't travel with the game when you sell it. And in cars like BMWs and Teslas, you literally have to pay a subscription for heated seats to work, something that wouldn't cost the manufacturer a single cent more to have on or off if the hardware is already there. I guess the real question is, are guitar manufacturers going to start to trend towards this attitude of the used market as well? Used gear in the music industry is a huge business that allows consumers to save hundreds of dollars on gear that would otherwise be prohibitively expensive brand new. Currently, the only real benefit to buying something brand new, other than the case candy and box and all that, and you know, who doesn't love stickers, but it's that the product's warranties are either a limited time, like one to three years, or if they're a lifetime warranty, they're for the original purchaser only and non-transferable. The only company that I know of off the top of my head that has a lifetime warranty, no matter who owns it, is Earthquaker Devices, which is extremely uncommon. I don't know. What do you guys think about all this? Is IK Multimedia right to essentially charge a fee on secondhand market sales? Let me know what you think. Next up, we've got a new pedal release from Electroharmonics, which thankfully requires no subscription whatsoever. First released in mid-2014, the Satisfaction Fuzz is one of Electroharmonics' budget line of pedals that aims to get you the classic tone that Keith Richards' Maestro Fuzz tone had on the Rolling Stone song Satisfaction, hence the name. What was always interesting to me about this pedal was the fact that it's not actually a clone of a fuzz tone at all, but rather a clone of the Jordan Boss tone, a much less popular and well-known effect released in the 70s. I'm not sure why Electroharmonics chose to use this as their base for it, but the schematics don't lie. It's definitely a boss tone. It's certainly close enough to the sound used on the actual Satisfaction song, but with its two controls simply for volume and attack, it wasn't the most versatile fuzz pedal on the market. Well, that all changed with the recent announcement of the Satisfaction Plus, which beefs up the original with the addition of two more knobs and a toggle switch. The new Satisfaction Plus is selling for 99 bucks, and it has the same volume and attack knobs as the original, plus a tilt-style tone control that allows you to shape the frequency response of the pedal to add more versatility, as well as a bias knob which allows you to control the voltage being sent to the first transistor in the circuit. This can get you the fun, spitty fuzz sound of a voltage star fuzz pedal, all the way to a hollower, more stable response. The toggle switch is where things really get interesting, with the pedal having the ability to stay in its usual normal mode, or be switched into a new fat mode that increases the low-end frequency response of the pedal to make it a much more usable tone in modern music than the original pedal was. It's a really thoughtful addition to the circuit. All in all, I think this is really cool. Well, I actually had ordered the original Satisfaction Fuzz about a year ago, and then subsequently cancelled it, I think I might actually pick this one up. It looks really user-friendly, and all the demos sound great. Okay, so hopefully this next piece of gear news is the last time we talk about anything coming out of NAM for this year, because I'm honestly getting somewhat tired of the internet just being flooded with product release after product release from NAM. So a lot of people have been talking about some nonsense in regards to NAM being dead or being cancelled, and I'll say right off the bat that I think those people are misinformed. I don't see anything saying that NAM is over and that they're not doing it next year. In fact, NAM has already stated that they've contracted out the convention space that they'll have it in next year, and that NAM 2024 is actually scheduled for January as usual, not like uh, April like it was this year. There are, however, a few factors that I think have contributed to this idea that NAM is dead or dying. 
First up, most of the vendors at NAM this year had stated that the only reason they were there was that they were given a credit after they'd rented their booths for 2022's NAM, which was then scrapped due to COVID. So they may or may not have attended of their own volition if they didn't have that credit. Who knows? NAM was a lot smaller this year than it has been in previous years, but I don't think that's really a sign that guitar is dying or that NAM is dying, but rather the fact that trade the trade show format itself might be falling by the wayside. It used to be that if you were a manufacturer in any sort of industry, a trade show was the perfect place that you dropped or announced your new gear, your new product. It was the time that you could get maximum face time with magazines, publications, and news outlets in order to push your product, so manufacturers would try to time their releases around these events so that their new products got maximum coverage. As products are becoming more and more digital, and influencers on social media like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube are becoming more prevalent and used to push products, it makes sense that companies wouldn't want to spend as much on a physical trade show. Even E3, the largest trade show in the world for video games, has been cancelled, and it used to be the main event gamers across the world look forward to every year because it meant fresh, new things. Because of this, you generally don't see as many larger companies attending NAM as they used to. This year's NAM was a lot of smaller companies, with the big names like Fender and Gibson being notable absentees, and I think these factors are what's really contributing to the rumors that NAM is dead. All in all, I don't think NAM's dead, and I think people are woefully misinformed. I think all that's happened is that we're seeing a shift in the overall attitude and function of trade shows now that companies can release products anytime they want and plaster it all over the internet with social media to help push it. I think NAM is still coming out of the throes of what COVID did when it canceled it, and I've got a feeling that NAM 2024 is going to be larger than this year's trade show, inspiring more confidence in the show and bringing it closer to what it was pre-pandemic. But who knows, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe guitar as an instrument is being cancelled tomorrow, and we're all going to have to switch to the xylophone. I just hope it has cool pedals, too. <laughs> if there's one pedal company that's taken the guitar world by storm and become a mainstay on pedal boards from beginners to professionals, it's Boss. Boss pedals are simple, reliable, and contain extremely high-quality circuits that are often cloned or modified for more boutique pedals. If you've played a few pedals before, chances are one of them is based on a Boss pedal. This week, we're going to talk about the development and history of Boss effects, where they came from, why they became so popular, and share some sound demos of some of my favorite Boss pedals. While I'm a pretty big collector, I don't have nearly everything in Boss's lineup, so for some of these sound demos, particularly the more vintage ones, I'll be using the Boss Katana's emulation of those effects, but more on those later. The story of Boss actually begins about two decades before the Boss name logo first appear. In 1954, Japanese engineer Ikutaro Kakehashi opens up a small radio repair shop in Osaka, Japan, in order to capture the budding radio market in the country. As he's building and repairing radios, he's experimenting on the side with building electric organs and eventually begins building audio amplifiers. In 1960, he forms a business around his inventions and he names it Ace Tone, becoming the predecessor to both Roland and Boss. In 1965, Ace Tone gets a contract to sell their products in the U.S. market, and in 1967, they release their first majorly successful product, the Rhythm Ace FR1, an automatic drum and beat machine that scored them a major deal with Hammond Organs, who would mount the Rhythm Ace on their commercial models for sale. After this initial success, Ace Tone begins to branch out into building a limited guitar effects based on popular units at the time, such as fuzzes, a phaser, an EQ, and a wah. 
In 1968, Kakihashi founds Ham in Japan, the Japanese division of ham and organs, but leaves nearly four years later for reasons that are ultimately unclear. In 1972, Kakihashi brings a few employees of Ace Tone and Ham Japan with him, and he founds a new company, Roland Corporation. The naming behind Roland is actually pretty funny. Uh, a lot of people say it has to do with, you know, Roland the Night or the song, but Kakihashi himself has actually admitted that he had no previous association with that name, but he picked it because he'd found it in a phone book. It was easy to pronounce, and it sounded interesting. You know, I'm almost kind of disappointed that there's no deeper meaning to it. <laughs> Kakeyashi's idea for Roland is pretty simple. Most audio and instrument manufacturing companies at this time are geared towards touring professionals and studios, but Roland is founded to try to capture the portion of the market comprised of hobbyists and student musicians, as during this time Japan doesn't really have many homegrown budget instrument companies, and student models were too expensive to import from overseas. Roland's first product took inspiration from Kakehashi's previous venture at Ace Tone, the Rhythm 77 Acoustic Drum Machine. After a few more drum machine models, in 1973, Roland releases their first synthesizers, the SH-1000 and the SH-3, building their reputation as a manufacturer of various range of electronic instruments. Between 1972 and 1975 is where the real fun begins. However, and Roland begins producing their first effects pedals, including three phasers, a sustainer, and two fuzzes with the Odd names of the BG and the Biba. However, their most famous during this line is easily the RE-201 Space Echo, an analog tape delay combined with a true spring reverb tank in one large, suitcase-sized enclosure. The Space Echo is honestly a pretty revolutionary device for its time. Where most tape delay machines at the time used circular reels to spool and play back the tape, the Space Echo allowed the tape to spool out freely into a chamber enclosed within a plastic lid. This seems somewhat counterintuitive, but it actually reduces variations in pitch during playback. Plus, it looks extremely cool if you watch the Space Echo operate with a cover open. The Space Echo had a single recording tape head and three separate playback heads, which could be selected with an 11 position mode switch that also brought the reverb tank in and out of the signal chain. Using the plethora of settings available, it's super easy to create really deep, dreamy repeats like this. to a short, standard analog tape delay, like this. That same year, we see the first product with a Boss name on it, the B100 The Boss an acoustic guitar amplification device shaped like a little triangle that had input and output jacks, a volume level, and a two-band EQ. It wasn't until 1976 when we begin to see Boss become an actual brand with the CE-1 Chorus Ensemble. The CE-1 was actually a clone of an already existing Roland circuit. In 1975, Roland had released two solid-state guitar amplifiers, the JC-120 and the JC-60, JC standing for Jazz Chorus, as these amplifiers were primarily designed for jazz players and included an onboard chorus effect. The chorus effect was so popular that Boss released it as a standalone pedal with controls for level, 
coarse intensity, and two controls that affected the rate and depth of the copied vibrato signal, as well as a high and low input. It's one of the most sought-after chorus pedals on the market that has an extremely lush and full sound to it, which inspired countless clones and reissues. Boss releases a few more pedals between 1976 and 1977, including a 10-band graphic equalizer and an overdrive that never really caught on. But the big event from this time period was actually the release of Boss's first flanger, the BF-1. Now why would something as relatively simple as a flanger be such a big milestone in Boss's history? Well, during this time, the whole reason that Roland had created the Boss brand of market effects pedals was that there wasn't really any competition in the Japanese guitar effects market. Almost everything that they had pedal-wise had to be imported from the United States, making guitar effects very rare and very expensive. Sure, you had Maxon creating pedals for sale in the Japanese market and selling them in the US under the Ibanez brand, but they were still a small operation creating relatively simple circuits. When Boss was asked to start manufacturing their own flanger, nobody at Boss actually had any idea what it even sounded like, and they didn't have any homegrown examples of it since Ibanez didn't even start marketing flangers until the 80s. The head engineer at Boss literally started crying after they got this request. <laughs> However, Boss's BF-1 turned out exceptional, with a unique sound different than any other overseas offerings. The success of the BF-1 spawned the ever-popular BF-2, and then today's digital BF-3, with all the intense flanging goodness you could ever hope for. <laughs> In 1977, Boss begins to release pedals in their compact format, the recognizable enclosure that we all know and love today. The design of this enclosure was actually done by Boss because they saw many American companies using utility enclosures for their pedals, namely the newly established MXR. Most of these early American pedals actually used enclosures designed for light switches. You know if you want to like mount a light switch or an outlet to a stud in like an unfinished basement? Those same enclosures are actually what spawned the design of modern pedal enclosures. But you see, Boss wanted to be different. They wanted something that was both iconic and functional, so they created their current large footswitch design that has since been copied by companies like Digitech, Ibanez, and Behringer. The Boss Compact design solved two major issues. The first is that it made battery changes extremely quick and easy. To change the battery in earlier pedals of the time, you'd have to take off the screws at the back of the enclosure, open up the entire pedal, snap the battery in, and then replace everything. On a Boss pedal, all you have to do is hand loosen the single thumb screw on the bottom, and the foot switch opens up to reveal the battery compartment. The second problem it solved is the myriad of issues related to actually switching the effect on and off. For one, Boss pedal's large foot switch made them super easy to click on and off in the heat of the moment. And for two, Boss implemented a new, soft relay-based switching system that solved the issues of clicks and pops when the effects units were turned on and off. The first pedals launched under the compact line were the OD-1 Overdrive, PH-1 Phaser, SP-1 Spectrum, GE-6 Equalizer, CS-1 Compressor, and TW-1 Automatic Wah. 
While many of these effects units haven't remained popular over the years, they became the jumping off point for the mainstays of the Boss lineup that many guitar players end up owning as their first effects pedals. In 1978, Boss releases the DS-1, an orange-colored, hard-clipping distortion unit that's been used by the likes of Kurt Cobain, Steve Vai, and John Frusciani. While it's only got three controls, tone, level, and distortion, it's one of the most usable dirt boxes out there, as long as you don't put the tone control all the way up. The DS-1 is so common, I honestly feel like if you pull up any old photo, you'll see it somewhere in the background. You know, old concert promos, wedding albums, probably even pictures of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think its popularity is indicative of how great sounding of a pedal it is. Not to mention, it always has been, and still is, just dirt cheap. It's only around 60 bucks, brand new. The following year, Boss releases probably my favorite effect they've ever released, the SG-1 Slow Gear. The Slow Gear is only produced from 1979 to 1982, and it serves a very unique function by taking your input guitar signal and having it swell according to the way that you set the sensitivity and the attack controls. It's honestly a pretty cool effect, and the explanation doesn't do it much justice. So here I've got the TC Electronic Crescendo, a modern day clone of the Slow Gear that works extremely well, and it's only 49 bucks certainly beats the $500 to $800 prices you see online for vintage slow gears. Not the most usable effect, but certainly one of the coolest. Another small circuit released around this time frame is actually one of my favorite noise gates, the Boss NF-1. I like it more than the NS-2, just because I feel like the gate opens and closes a tad quicker, and it's a bit more utilitarian to me. They're great to pick up on the used market, and they work extremely well, so where you can hardly tell they're opening and closing, but you definitely notice when they're not on. Here, what I've done is set up the NF-1, I'll play a riff with some really fast staccato riffs so the gate is forced to open and close. Once I'm done, I'll click it off so you can hear how much it's actually helping. In 1981, we see the release of the SD-1 Super Overdrive, another common mainstay of pedal boards across the community. The SD-1 is a soft clipping overdrive made seemingly in response to the Ibanez TS-808, and can be used in a very similar manner to push tube amplifiers into breakup. The SD-1 was actually my first guitar pedal, and I've still got the same one after years, a testament to just how tough boss pedals are. If there's an apocalypse, you know, but somehow we still have electricity. I'm hunting down all the boss pedals I can. I guarantee you they're going to survive. Either way, if you're looking for a more wallet-friendly alternative to a Tube Screamer, look no further than this guy.
Boss releases the GE7 graphic equalizer around the same time, as well as the DM2 analog delay. In 1982, they release a few more pedals that are relatively short-lived, but 1983 is where Boss really strikes gold with the release of the first digital delay pedal ever, the DD2. The DD2 is unique because it provides guitarists with a much longer, cleaner repeats indicative of digital delay without the short, warbly degradation of bucket brigade analog delays or the expensive maintenance of tape units. The DD2 wasn't the first digital delay by any means, but what makes it a landmark is the fact that it made it accessible and portable, as up to this point digital delay was only available in larger, more expensive rack mount units. The DD2 had three knobs and one rotary switch to control the level, feedback, and overall time of the repeats, as well as modes for short, medium, and long time brackets on the rotary switch. It was also capable of stereo operation. I don't have an original DD2, as they were discontinued in 1986 when it was replaced by the DD3, and later the DD3T, which is the modern production unit that I've got here today. Both versions of this make very few changes to the original DD2, mostly in quality of life updates, as the DD3T gives you the ability to send a signal via direct out, as well as set the tap tempo with the repeats. It's a really useful effect to have on your board. Boss continues to release pedals throughout the 80s, but hits another landmark again when they release the RV2 Digital Reverb, the first digital reverb pedal on the market. Once again, this isn't the first digital reverb unit ever available, but the first digital reverb pedal. It's a big move because the first digital reverb unit was only released in the previous decade, the EMT250, which was the size and shape of a podium used for speeches. In less than a decade, Boss has taken the idea of digital reverb and shrunk it down into a device about the size of a cell phone, once again making complex studio effects more affordable and more portable than ever before. The RV2's modern incarnation, the RV6, has controls for reverb level, tone, time, and modes for modulated reverb, spring, plate, hall, room, dynamic, shimmer, and even an added delay mode, plus stereo functionality. It's a real beast of a digital reverb that really pushes the limits of how far the technology can go. Now up until this point, all of Boss's effects are made in their factory in Japan, but due to economic conditions and trying to keep the company's pedals more affordable, we see Boss shift the production of their pedals from Japan to Taiwan in the year 1990. There's one quick way to be able to tell the difference between a Japanese-made Boss pedal and a Taiwanese-made one, especially in the cases of units that were manufactured in both factories like the DS1 and the SD1. Assuming that someone hasn't tried to replace it to pass it off as an original, the Japanese-made Boss pedals had silver metal screws in the bottom of the pedal for the battery compartment access, while the Taiwanese ones transitioned to a black plastic head on the screw instead. If you're a collector, that's one quick way to be able to tell the difference. You know, in addition to just checking the made-in label on the back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sometimes I make things more complicated than they need to be. But hey, I mean, if it's scratched or worn off, that's one more thing to look for. Now I'm skipping quite a few models here, but in 1991, Boss releases probably the most memed on pedal in history, the MT2 Metal Zone. Why do I say memed upon? Well, originally marketed to guitarists in the budding grudge and metal movement of the 90s, the MT2 was the high-tech, feature-heavy distortion box of guitar players' dreams. It's got controls for level, distortion, a 3-band EQ, as well as a middle-frequency sweep to give you greater control over your tone. One problem, though. The pedal sounds like... But does it, though? Or are we just using it wrong? I'm sure you guys have seen the plethora of YouTube videos in the guitar community that talk about running the metal zone through the return of an amp's effects loop, effectively using it as a preamp rather than an outfront distortion box, and I've got to say this is probably the best use for it. While originally it was ragged on pretty heavily, it's a great, inexpensive way to be able to add an awesome metal-sounding distortion channel to any clean amplifier with an effects loop. Once again, skipping over quite a few pedals, in 1995 we see the release of another high-profile boss unit, the BD2 Blues Driver. What's so special about the Blues Driver? Well, I'm glad you asked, my rhetorically inquisitive guitarist friend. The Blues Driver is honestly unlike any other overdrive effect to this point, behaving somewhat more like an amplifier's drive section than the op-amp and clipping diode-based overdrives we've seen to this point. The blues driver, unlike some may tell you, doesn't really share any DNA with a blues breaker or with a clon, although it's capable of achieving similar sounds to both of them. The blues driver actually makes use of cascading gain stages to make it sound like a vintage tube amplifier saturating and breaking up, bringing you anywhere from a light crunch all the way to nearly fuzz territory. It can get a little ice picky when it comes to the high end, especially when it's cranked, but that's easily fixed by running your amp's EQ a little darker. Either way, it gets a great vintage drive sound, perfect for more than just the blues genre the name suggests. In 1998, Boss releases the TU2, the first ever chromatic tuner in a pedal format. A lot of, uh, a lot of firsts this episode. If you take a look at anybody's pedal board, I'd say two in five of these boards have a TU2 or its successive TU3 on them. While I know it's not the most exciting release ever, it's crazy to think that this tuner has been on boards since 1998, and it's stuck around that long for something as simple as a utility effect. In 2001, after 41 years at the helm, Kakehashi steps down as the CEO of Roland, and he shifts to becoming a special executive advisor of the corporation. He begins work on his autobiography to be released a year later, which is honestly a really great book that sheds a lot of light on the state of the musical industry market in Japan at the time. It really serves to show the environment Boss sort of grew up in, and what set the stage for some of their unique designs. In 2006, Boss introduces their Composite Object Sound Modeling Technology, or COSM as they call it, which is Roland's digital modeling technology. 
With the Cosm framework, they released the AC3 Acoustic Simulator, a very convincing pedal that allows you to take your electric guitar and, well, make it sound like an acoustic. While it's not exactly the same, it's close enough that it'll work in a pinch or at a live show where you don't want to worry about another guitar or miking the instrument. The same year, they also released the RC2 Looper, a pedal that has spawned various iterations of loopers from Boss and still remains a mainstay of pedal boards across the hobby. If you're looking for a looper, this guy is a great place to start. Boss begins to fully realize their Cosm technology use in 2009 with the release of the FRV1, a digital model of a true Fender spring reverb tank found in their amplifiers. This is the first pedal that I can find where Boss actually admits to somewhat copying someone else. They also modeled a Fender Bassman with their FBM-1, a full amp in a box produced in Boss's compact enclosure. In 2013, Boss releases their 100th pedal, the DE2 Terra Echo, a digital delay that uses multi-dimensional processing. From Boss's explanation, MDP is actually a sort of smart technology that listens to your guitar and how you play it, changing up how it applies the effect depending on the way that you're playing. The best example Boss has of this is one of their distortion pedals changing up its tone when it senses you playing chugging licks through the bridge pickup, then swapping when you play a solo in the neck pickup, all without turning the knobs. It's a pretty cool concept. In 2014, Boss released their new line of pedals titled the Wazacraft series, where they reissued their classic pedals like the DM2, CE2, and DC2 with a suffix of W on the model name. Each Wazacraft effect is marketed to have premium components, also returning the country manufactured to Japan, but the big change has to do with the custom switch included on most units. This custom switch does a variety of things on different pedals, usually introducing a different mode to the effect, such as on the Blues Driver, where the alternate mode is similar to the popular Keeley mod. In 2016, we see Boss release the Katana series of amplifiers, a new generation of modelers that include five different amp models, a three-band EQ, volume, gain, and master controls, as well as a plethora of onboard effects, all based on Boss's classic stomp boxes. The amp is the ability to store presets, as well as built-in power attenuation to adjust for playing live or in a quiet bedroom. These amps absolutely rip, and the Katana Mark II I've been playing through today adds some much-needed updates, like an additional five amp models, and the ability to control more effects at once. I'm a really big fan of the high gain settings on this amplifier, and it works extremely well for metal even without effects applied. The real kicker with the Katana series, though, is that Boss used the same software for their GT100 pedal, which allows you to access a host of other options if you connect the amp to a computer, tablet, or phone via USB cable and use Katana software. You've got over 28 different models you can use, and even more tonal parameters you can change, allowing you to model some classic amps with nothing more than some additional software. Just look at how much of a difference we get after a few taps on a tablet to make it model a matchless amp.
In 2019, Boss released the Compact Polyphonic SY1 Synthesizer Pedal, one of the pedals in their lineup that I probably had the most fun using. Now I could sit here and walk you through all 121 different modes, the effect and direct blend controls, as well as the tone, rate, and depth settings, or I could just do my favorite thing with it and make spaceship noises. Psst. I'm going with option B. <laughs> Yeah, that was a guitar. Now, Boss has continued to invent and push the boundary of current guitar technology. While their pedals and amps may not be the most flashy or the most eye-catching, they're definitely some of the most functional and dependable pieces of gear you can get that'll last you for years, get you great tones, and won't break the bank. If I tell you to think of a pop-punk artist, you might think of someone like Avril Lavigne, Green Day, Blink-182, or Fall Out Boy. But recently, we've seen a new player in the genre that gets made fun of quite a bit. Okay, I'll be honest, I mean, I make a lot of jokes about him, but hey, he's pretty successful, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I actually like the pop-punk stuff that he's put out recently, but I don't think he's quite at the point where we can give him credit for saving or making pop-punk, as some people claim. Of course, we're talking about the man, the myth, the tattooed legend named Colson Baker, otherwise known as Machine Gun Kelly. Machine Gun Kelly was born April 22, 1990 in Houston, Texas, and had a pretty wild early life due to his parents' status as Christian missionaries, living all over the world in countries like Germany and Egypt. His early life was pretty rough and he grew up in poverty, but he began finding solace in music after being inspired like artists by Eminem and Ludacris. When Baker was 18, he began to make a name for himself by rapping in Harlem and recording rap songs at home, eventually being featured on MTV. While the newfound attention was helpful in getting his career off the ground, it didn't help him much economically, as he continued to hold down a job at Chipotle and was constantly facing eviction from his apartment. In 2010, he gained national attention with the song Alice in Wonderland and gained him various awards from the regional critic bodies such as the Underground Music Awards and Ohio Hip Hop Awards. Baker then recorded a second mixtape in late 2010 titled Lace Up, which featured a song about Cleveland that was played at home games in the Rocket Mortgage Stadium in downtown Cleveland. The following year, Baker was scouted by Sean Combs of Bad Boy Records, where he signed a recording contract and produced his first studio album, also titled Lace Up, at this point the saying having become his catchphrase. When Lace Up was released, it included an all-star lineup of featured artists such as Little John, Tech 9 Waka Flocka, and DMX. The album reached number four on the U.S. Billboard charts in its first week of sales. Baker began to catch even more fame after signing to the label, with his new songs in 2012 being used in commercials by phone company HTC, WWE Wrestling, and eventually winning a true MTV award at the national level. In 2012, Baker said some not-so-nice things about Eminem's daughter, which spawned a diss track released on Eminem's album Kamikaze, lighting a public feud between the two rappers. Baker responded with a diss track in 2018 titled Rap Devil that was honestly pretty weird. Uh, in it, he was holding a bowl of cereal the whole time while the video was shot in black and white. All in all, a really strange kind of deal. Eminem then responded to the diss track with a song titled Kill Shot, which honestly pretty much ended the feud then and there, but it was some great publicity for him. In 2019, Baker began working on his next album, Hotel Diablo, where the third single was the song we'll be looking at today, I Think I'm Okay. 
This track featured UK rapper Youngblood and Travis Barker, the drummer for Blink-182, with the album hitting number 5 on the Billboard charts. Baker began to release more pop-punk music, with many people saying Eminem had beaten him so hard during their feud that he switched genres. <laughs> In mid-2020, during the COVID lockdowns, Baker began to release covers of older pop-punk songs like Misery Business by Paramore and My House by Purrus. He released his first fully pop-punk album titled Tickets to My Downfall on September 25th, 2020. The album was later turned into an online musical film titled Downfalls High that was stylized by Baker as a modern-day retelling of Greece. In 2022, Baker released his most recent album, Mainstream Sellout, later telling people that he would be taking a break from pop-punk and getting back to his rap and hip-hop roots as, that's what the people want. While he's been largely successful, and I'm a pretty big fan of his pop-punk stuff, his signature Schecter guitar, and even some of his rap music, you've got to admit the guy definitely has an interesting way of presenting himself. From live shows where he breaks out of toy doll boxes to him presenting Megan Fox an engagement ring with thorns that hurts to remove, he's up there on the spectrum of celebrities with some crazy publicity stunts. Either way, that's not what's important. Let's get into his guitar tone. For this song, Baker uses two separate guitars, one acoustic and one electric. We'll start with the acoustic as it's used in the intro. Baker uses a Schechter Orleans Stage Acoustic Electric. It's a single cut, spruce and maple body guitar with a maple neck and rosewood fretboard, Grover tuners, a bone nut and saddle, and a Fishman Elsys Plus acoustic preamp with an onboard tuner, volume knob, two band EQ, and a phase switch. At 559 bucks, it's already a steal, but with some EQ tricks and some choice mic placement, we can use almost any acoustic we'd like here. I'm using a Fender CD60. It's a dreadnought style Fender with a spruce top, mahogany back and sides, and a walnut fingerboard. While we have some non-branded tuners and a plastic nut and saddle, it's an extremely comfortable and well-crafted guitar that even has rolled fretboard edges for maximum comfort and only goes for $199. While it doesn't have an onboard preamp, I've used two mics on this guitar, one over the sound hole near my picking hand and one closer to the fretboard near the neck joint. I'm blending these two together to get my desired tone, but we'll talk more about acoustic miking in our recording tips section. For now, here's what it sounds like. For his electric, Baker actually has a signature T-style guitar manufactured by Schechter that has a single humbucker, single volume and tone control, with a maple neck, ebony fingerboard, graph tech nut, locking tuners, and a Schechter USA Pasadena Plus pickup. It's just shy of $1,000, which is honestly on the less expensive end for artist signature models. Granted, it doesn't really have a huge host of unique features either. If you want to stick with the Schechter PT line, you could pick up the Sun Valley Super Shredder for $749. It's a mahogany body, maple neck and fingerboard beast of a guitar, with a Floyd Rose special tremolo system, but the big hit here are the EMG Retroactive Hot 70 pickups, which will have a mid to high output vintage flavor to them with the unparalleled clarity of active pickups. It's punching way above its price point. Here I'm going to be using the Schechter Diamond Series C1 Plus. They go for around $200-$300 dollars on the used market, as they're not in production anymore but they're the definition of a budget guitar, worth way more than you're paying for it. It's got a carved heel, set mahogany neck, ebony fingerboard, mahogany body, tone pros to pneumatic bridge, graphite nut, 
Grover tuners, two volume and one tone control setup with two Duncan design humbuckers modeled after the Seymour Duncan JB and Jazz set, giving you an awesome high output vintage voice bridge pickup for this tone. For his amp, Baker actually uses a Kemper profiler that sells brand new for $18.99. It's an amp profiler, not a modeler, which means it essentially creates very complex impulse responses of real amplifiers after sending a series of robotic beeps and boops through the amp, and then it's able to recreate the tones and response of that amp. While this information doesn't necessarily help us, it does help to know that Baker is profiling a Soldano SLO 100, a classic rock and metal amplifier known for its squeaky American voice cleans and crushing high gain channels. It seems like MGK himself is trying to save a couple bucks, given the slow 100 is pushing about four grand. One option you do have is to use the Soldano SLO Mini, a $249 miniature, all solid state amplifier head. This amp is an entirely FET version of the All Tubes SLO in a 30 watt package, sporting master volume, presence, and gain knobs as well as a three-band EQ, a normal and deep toggle switch, and a crunch and overdrive switch. Now this amp does at, uh, lack the clean channel of the SLO 100, but since we'll only be using an overdriven sound, that doesn't matter too much here. You've also got an effects loop and two speaker outputs on the back of the head. There's a few other versions of this amp, including a Bogner Ecstasy, a Friedman BE, and a Diesel. And to me, they look to be essentially one of the preamp pedals based on those amplifiers, coupled with a few extra features and a solid state power amp, so not a bad deal at all. Here I'm actually going to be using the Rev G3. The G3 is a preamp pedal based on Rev's Generator 120 amplifier, specifically the tight, high gain purple channel reminiscent of the SLO. It's got a 3 band EQ, gain and volume knobs, as well as a 3 position aggression switch. At $230, it's not cheap by any means but it was originally designed by Rev as a fully transistor version of the generator, and the quality certainly shows. It sounds great, and it feels extremely amp-like. You can run it into the effects return of any amplifier you have to get a great tone. Just don't push your master volume too high, as we don't want our power tubes to saturate or distort if you're using a tube amp. That'll color the tone too much. I've set it with a gain at 9 o'clock, bass at 2 o'clock, mids and treble at 10 o'clock, volume at unity, and with the aggression switch off. While any effects Baker is using are likely modeled through the Kemper as well, it somewhat leaves us guessing as to what he could be modeling, but after listening to this song on repeat for hours while tweaking knobs and swapping out pedals, I think I've got it figured out. First up is the Boss SD-1 for 63 bucks. The reason I'm using this here isn't to add more gain, as plenty of that's available to us with the Rev, but rather to push the input of the guitar signal just a bit harder before it hits the Rev to add some natural sounding compression, as the guitar track is extremely tight mid-range focus. To accomplish this, I've set it with a drive at 8 o'clock, level at noon, and tone at 2 o'clock, so we're not actually engaging the clipping section, just adding a bit of front-end boost to even out our signal.
Next, I'm going to kick on the Fender Marine Layer Reverb for $179. As we all know, reverb makes everything better, and it can make an otherwise sterile sounding track much more alive and in the room with you. I've set it with the room algorithm on 1 and the filter off with the pre-delay at 9 o'clock, reverb time and level at noon, and damping at 9 o'clock, so there's just a splash, but enough that it brings the track out. Now it's kind of hard to hear, but in the last chorus and the section that immediately follows it, you can hear a much cleaner electric guitar playing a really short sort of single note progression in the background, and there's a very lush sounding delay on the track. All I've done here is dialed back the gain on the rev, switched off the SD-1, swapped the neck pickup, then added an MXR carbon copy analog delay with the mod switch off, regen at 10 o'clock, mix at 11 o'clock, and delay at 3 o'clock. It gets us a great delay over a track that adds some movement and beauty for only 149 bucks. And that's it. With our original rig sitting at 3457, it's not the most expensive rig we've ever featured on the show, but our budget rig costs only 1020, leading to a total savings of 2437 for a very versatile pop-punk tone. As promised, our recording tip this week will be all about how to mic your acoustic guitar for the best results in your recording. If you weren't aware before, of course you don't need an acoustic electric guitar to be able to record it. Fully acoustic guitars aren't just for the odd campfire or talent show gig. They're versatile tools that can be used in a variety of creative ways to get great quality recordings that most importantly are authentic sounding and lively. I actually really enjoy using a fully acoustic guitar while recording. Even though acoustic electrics may be more convenient, I like the challenge of recording a fully acoustic guitar, and the way that I'm forced to use different miking techniques ends up giving me more control and thought overall into the recording, rather than just taking the easy way out of using the guitar's preamp. When recording an acoustic, I'm a huge fan of blending signals of different parts of the guitar to develop a more fleshed out recording. If I'm using an acoustic electric, I'll use the signal from the pickup and the preamp to add its own flavor if it's a high quality preamp, but the majority of the tones that I'm actually using comes from two to three strategically placed microphones in the recording environment. For the first microphone, I like to use a cardioid condenser mic offset from the sound hole by a 45 degree angle, about six inches away from the guitar. The primary purpose of this mic is to capture the volume of the sound hole, resonation of the top, and the sound of the pick or my fingers hitting the strings. The standard placement that I recommended sounds like this. Now without even touching the EQ in our DAW, we can drastically change the sound of the guitar just by moving the microphone. If I want to capture more of the attack of the strings, I can move the microphone more on axis to my picking hand, bringing it closer to the source and directly in front of it.
If we want a warmer sound that captures more of the resonation and depth of the guitar, we can move the microphone further away from the picking hand, closer to the rear portion of the guitar's resonant top. Now that's all well and good, but still a pretty limited for my liking. So what about adding another microphone to the mix? Just like guitar pickups, pedals, and amps, microphones all have their own specific sound and can drastically sound different from one another, especially when you use different microphone types. For the second microphone, I'm going to be using an omnidirectional mic, the classic SM57, commonly used to mic guitar cabinets. For the second microphone, I generally like to place it right about where the guitar's neck joins the body, angled slightly more towards the headstock of the guitar. This picks up more the resonance of the strings and can allow you to blend some of the noise your fingers make when pressing or sliding on the strings into your performance. If you're playing slide guitar and you want to capture more of the jangle of the slide, this mic works extremely well for that as well, and it serves as a nearly purpose-built tool to allow you to blend the sound of the slide in and out as you please. Yeah, I'm not a slide player by nature, so uh, cut me a break. Now that we've seen the capabilities of Mic 2, we can blend it in with our signal from Mic 1, adjusting the levels as we please to have the ultimate tonal control over the guitar. Here's an example. Alright guys, I'm about to feel like Billy Mays here, but wait, there's more! Let's throw a third mic into the mix. So this one we're not going to place on the guitar itself, but rather in the room with us, capturing the sound of the guitar resonating in the room to make it sound even more realistic and personal on our recording. I usually like to place my room mic 6-10 to 10 feet away, avoiding any walls and corners in the room as they can create unpleasant comb filtering or bass buildup that limits our control over this mic's signal. Here you'll want to use another cardioid condenser microphone in order to better capture the sound of the room and face it directly towards the guitar at about the same height level the guitar is at. On its own, the reverb mic really doesn't sound all that great. <laughs> But when we blend it in, putting it all together with our signals from mics 1 and 2, it sounds like the best version of our recording yet. All we need to do to change the amount of reverb mix is raise and lower the volume of the reverb mic until we get a value we're happy with.
And if you're not happy with the sound of the room that you've got, use a different one. Unique environments like bathrooms, kitchens, and even garages can all make interesting sounding reverb spaces that you can use to make your recording sound exactly how you want it. If you could get access to a building such as a large hall or a church, higher ceilings and larger spaces can get you an even more pronounced reverb with much more depth. Now I've only got 9 boss pedals and 1 boss amp, hardly what would be considered a super fan of the brand, but did you know the largest boss collection ever is at over 75 different boss effects and counting? Yeah, a man from Nashville, Tennessee named Cameron Johnson has one of the largest boss collections ever, earning him a spotlight on Roland's website. He started with the Evercommon TU2 and branched out at one point and had the entire compact boss line of 109 pedals before selling some common ones to fund some life events. He's even got some real rarities like the SG-1 Slow Gear, an original SP-1 Spectrum, and the FA-1 Fed Amplifier. If you're interested in what he's got going on, check out his Instagram titled The Boss Pedal Project. I'm not sure now because it hasn't been updated in a while, but uh, Josh Scott might have him beat. But as the writing of Roland's article, he's got the largest, uh, largest boss collection. Yeah. So, currently I'm giving away free podcast t-shirts, and I'm so excited that I wrote a song about it. You want to hear it? Here we go. The 10% cotton, 20% wool, 15% leather taken off a bull. 5% nylon, 50% shame, and 100% funded by a guitar shame. Oh lord, who let me on the internet unsupervised? <laughs> yeah, I just want to put out that this is in no way an advertisement of what these shirts are made of. I have no idea, I'm not a t-shirt scientist, but I can tell you that they're really comfortable, and they're a lot cooler than that rap was. <laughs> if you shoot me a DM on any one of my socials, or send me an email telling me what your favorite piece of budget gear is and why you like it, you'll be entered to win a free Pedals and Pickups podcast shirt. If you want one now and you can't wait until I choose this month's winner at the end of May, go ahead and hop on my Teespring store to order one now. I promise they're cheaper than therapy, just like guitar pedals. Reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics or just chat about gear. I love hanging out with you guys, love interacting with you. It's the highlight of my day every time I get to nerd out about gear with somebody. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. Now, I feel like if I sit here and tease this next episode again, saying that I've got something big in the works, I'm going to jinx it, and USPS still isn't going to deliver it by next week. So I'm not going to say anything. Or I am, and I'm going to knock on wood, because I guess I already did say something. Okay. I think we're good now. Yeah, next week, we should have my love letter to a discontinued amp brand. Uh, but we'll see. Maybe they're not as discontinued as I thought. Um, yeah, stick around, tune in next week, and we'll talk about something really exciting that I've had in the works for a while. Until then, though, have a great day. Take care. See you next week. <laughs>